بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم على منه ونعمه وكرمه ولطفه ورحمته الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا كبيرا حمدا مستديما دائما عنيدا والله أكبر الله أكبر الله أكبر هو خالق الأكوان ومبدع البيان إله الكون ومبدع القرآن ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على محمد النبي المختار خاتم النبيين المرسل رحمة للعالمين Praise God Acknowledging our gratitude to God The maker of the heavens and the earth and life itself whether seen or unseen, whether acknowledged or unacknowledged, and recognize the over the the over existence, there is a Lord who controls the one sovereign, the one maker. And we pray for peace and blessings upon the Prophet Muhammad and upon all the Prophets of God who came to convey a message of liberation for humanity, a message of honor and dignity, a message that we human beings and existence itself is not the result of some accident, coincidence, or happenstance, but that it is designed by purpose and for a purpose, that it belongs to the one and only, the maker of the heavens and the earth, and that as sovereign over existence, it is only God that will decide and that, that does decide what transpires and takes place and will take place and ultimately the fate of this universe. First, First, we have to deal again, although I will not hopefully spend a lot of time on this, deal with the, 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 very, the practice of virtual Jumas. I think yesterday or before yesterday, the Islami, the uh, Muslim Scholars Union, uh, I believe, although I'm not 100% sure, I believe that this is not the one, it's not Ittihad al-Alam al-Ulama al-Muslimin. No, it, it, it's, um, 
it's an, so one of the, uh, the association of Muslim scholars. I don't believe it's the one that it is that is headquarters in Saudi. Uh, I think it's the the other one um, that used to be headed by Qardawi. Um, anyway, that association um, was. Uh, on a Jazeera, or representative from the association was on a Jazeera channel, and uh, uttered what amounts to a fatwa, although I have not seen a written record of it, because I, I've done some research and could not find uh, an, a written fatwa, but rather it was just verbally communicated. And the, the sum of it is that the association on behalf of that speaker was saying that virtual Jumu'ahs is haram. Um, that it is inconsistent with the laws of Sharia to conduct during the time of the plague uh, a virtual Juma in any form. There's several things to take into account uh, about this. It was right after the stay-home order started popping up and the crisis from the coronavirus. Several virtuous Jumas popped up in different places by different people. And the basic idea was, well, if the mosques are closed, because mosques all over the world, including the Muslim world, have been shut down and Jumas have been canceled. Uh, several people on their own initiative decided to have what amounts to a virtual Jumah, although it's not quite clear from the ones that I've seen, um, they don't seem to have thought through what they mean by a virtual Jumah. In, in many cases, it's just someone getting on the podium and saying, here's the khutbah, I'm going to pray, Jum'ah, now follow me um, along electronically. And as I said, we cannot ignore the rules for Jum'ah. We cannot simply have an imam that prays who doesn't know whether a quorum exists for ijama' or not. Uh, that is not the idea of a jama'. Simply an imam giving a khutbah and then offering prayers and is not sure whether a quorum exists or there, a quorum doesn't exist. In other words, the minimum number of people that is acceptable for a valid jama'ah. Now, I understand the point of view of the Association of Muslim Scholars. Their point of view is that jama'ah was mandated in part so that Muslims will commune together. They will come together, meet face-to-face, -face, shake hands, hug, converse, offering, offering zikr, and before dispersing back to their homes, that there is a, a, an, a community of believers that physically come together and physically and collectively men, do zikr, worship Allah. And that the idea of a collective worshiping of Allah through these physical bodies that come together, ideally as an ummah with this feeling 
that we represent a single people and a single nation. That if you do virtual Jumas and if virtual Jumas spread and they become the norm, then you've defeated that very important objective of a physical, the physical interaction of the Ummah and the coming together of a Jama'ah. And from their perspective, even if there is a plague and we have to close down mosques and suspend Jumas and Jamaas for a period of time, there is simply no reason that we create an innovation in ibadat, in an innovation ibadah, in worship and in ibadah. When you create a bid'ah, an innovation in the realm of ibadah, in the realm of worship, that's far more serious and you have to have rather compelling reasons for it. And you have to think cautiously act through and, and in fact invoke the principle of ihtiyat, the principle of precaution or being cautious before you innovate anything in ibadat because ibadat are the, the, the rituals, the acts of worship are decreed by God directly and we don't always know the reason for what the ibadah we do other than God wanted it so. And so that's the logic that they relied on that even if there is an emergency, so what? When the emergency is done, and there have been emergencies in different forms in the past, especially in uh, the Middle East, wars, various plagues over the, the ages that have caused very similar things where for whatever reason people could not pray Jum'ah or Jama'ah and it was suspended until the circumstances changed and people returned again to the mosque and there basically no harm done and in, in fact, the association said, if you must, then have a lecture, but pray Zohar, don't, don't, don't pray Jum'ah, pray, just pray Zohar and have a normal lecture um, so that we don't change the rules for Jum'ah. Now, there are two considerations, and, I, and, and again, it, it is because we have to take our sharia seriously. And if one is irrationally restrictive and conservative, that does a lot of harm. But if one is willy-nilly and uh, very... Um, haphazardly doing whatever one pleases when it comes to issues of ibadat, then obviously that will also unravel the, the, the thread of sharia and make it meaningless. So that's why I'm spending time on this again and addressing this issue. Now there are two considerations here and two things that are worthy of thinking about. I've noticed that since the pandemic in the United States, there have been several people that popped up. Basically, they, they bring a camera and they sit in front of a camera and they say, here I am, I'm giving a khutbah, you know, often sitting somewhere or sitting behind the desk or uh, standing uh, somewhere. And then they say, okay, here, I'm going to pray two rakahs and this is Jumaah, just follow me. And they're not even sure whether anyone is praying behind them or they're, uh, and usually they do it as an individual. 
that is seriously problematic. And in fact, in my view, that type of Jum'ah is null and void. The idea is not for an individual to give a khutbah and then pray to rakahs and say, here, this is uh, your Jum'ah and done. But the two points that I want to focus on, and again, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we have to address it. One, I might agree with the association as far as Jum'ah in Muslim countries are concerned. There are some points one can agree with, other points you can disagree with, but ultimately, ultimately, If Jum'ah is suspended for however long in these countries, once the crisis is over, once the emergency is over, you reopen the mosques, you hold Jum'ahs again, and the mosques will fill up, and there is effectively no harm done. You, you, People will worship God at their homes, and then they will worship God collectively when circumstances change. We have a very different set of considerations for Muslims in non-Muslim countries. Often in non-Muslim countries, Jum'ah is the only thread that is maintained by so many Muslims between them and their tradition. Jum'ah is often the one remaining thing that even makes them feel that they are part of an ummah of Muslims. There are so many distractions and so many threats to the withering away of a Muslim identity. To be very blunt, especially for the younger generation, there is nothing that makes them feel Muslim, save but for this one thing that they do in a week. And Unlike churches, which often have a series of activities associated with their worship, and unlike synagogues that have a whole host of practices that reaffirm and confirm your Jewishness and your sense of pride in being Jewish or being Christian. With Muslims, Jum'ah for all practical purposes is it, and it is very minimal. For so many Muslims, they'll go to Jum'ah, it will last 15 minutes, 20 minutes, they pray, they're gone, and that's their basic Islam. And for so many Muslims, even if they do their five prayers at home, assuming that they do their salah and their uh, and they're regular with it, life in itself doesn't affirm a social bond as a Muslim except for this one event, the Jum'ah event. So there is a different sense of compelling need among Muslims in the West or Muslims in non-Muslim countries. Jum'ah is a lifeline for so many Muslims and especially our children and the youth. The one thing that reminds them that they are Muslim and they belong to an ummah and that they have an identity other than the identity of 
whatever social context they exist in. And in fact, if Jum'ah, if that connection between them and their identity through the mechanism of Jum'ah is severed for a period of time for whatever reason, current circumstances obviously because of the virus, and it is severed for a month, two months, you cannot casually say, well, what's the problem? We just restore Jum'ah afterwards because their connection between so many Muslims and their sense of bonding with a nation called Muslims, the Ummah, is so tenuous that it might not return. <laughs> so many folks, once you reopen the mosques, they might not even come back to Islam. So, and the second thing, the second factor is that, well, if Jum'ah plays this very critical role among Muslims in non-Muslim countries, how can we respect the rules of the tradition that wants physical presence and the ex exigent circumstance that arise among Muslims, especially Muslims in secular countries, and especially in secular liberal countries where the temptations and the risks are so high, how do we respect the rules of the tradition, the sunnah of the Prophet and at the same time look after the interests that Muslims, the interests that need to be served among Muslims in the West. And here, the critical factor for Jum'ah is that there is a sense of collectivity and a sense of ummah that comes together to worship Allah. If you have a meeting of the minds, if you have people with the intent to do Jum'ah and they decide to meet collectively instead of physically because of the circumstances of the plague, but virtually, the purposes of Jum'ah are met and the rules of Jum'ah are met because it is the intentionality. It is one that you have a pure intent had it not been for these circumstances, and Allah knows my intentions, I would have met physically. So clear and pure intents. Second, you have an intent and the act, not of an imam just doing whatever the imam does by himself, but rather an imam agreeing or coming or consenting with a congregation that agrees to come together under these exceptional circumstances to worship Allah in a state of zikr and to conduct Jajum'ah prayer while physical while presence, the rules for presence are achieved electronically because these people make the effort to come together and if Allah allowed us to live in an age in which technology is present, put this differently, I've asked myself if the early companions lived in our day and age and if they confronted similar set of circumstances, what would they have done especially if they found themselves in a place where the, the people, Muslims, are, have such a tenuous connection to their Islamic identity and Islamic community 
would they simply sit on the side and allow the threats that already exist to this community and to this identity? Or would they use the modern technology and attempt to creatively and daringly fulfill the official roles for Jum'ah, but at the same time come to a compromise that achieves the purposes of Sharia. This is an important point because one, I for Muslims in the West, I don't think that the, uh, that the Association of Muslim Scholars and what they said about Jum'ah is correct as far as Muslims in the West are concerned, because we have very different concerns and very different worries, and don't use the coronavirus um, as an excuse to let an essential worship and an essential state of supplication and blessings that come through Jum'ah just simply wither away. And two, if you are going to have a virtual Jum'ah, then please follow the rules of fulfilling the minimum required. If it cannot be done through physical presence, then have it done through meeting of the minds and the intention to form ijama'ah, whether through some form of you know conference-type meeting um, um, technology, where people intentionally come together on the net and offer Jum'ah prayers. Now, this is connected to another important factor. We are going through a real test and hardship. Some of our brothers and sisters have lost jobs, have lost income. The truth of the matter is, is we will have, many of us will have family members who will get sick. We will have family members that will die. We ourselves, whoever the we is, might also get sick and die. That's the nature of under these circumstances. That is, of course, a source of stress. And part of being a Muslim community is that we feel each other's pain, not deny it, not pretend that it doesn't exist but feel it and respond to it. Remember that Allah reminds us that in nations and tribes and peoples before us, Allah has always sent things that cause forms of hardship. And the key challenge is where do you turn when this hardship befalls you? Remember that the Prophet himself was confronted not just with the death of his wife, but the death of his children repeatedly. Boys and girls, remember that even when the Prophet won his first battle in Badr and returned from the battle of Badr back to Medina, very happy that they were victorious and this was the first battle in Islam and the first victory in Islam, 
what was waiting for him upon his return. What was waiting for him is the news of Ruqayya, his daughter, passing away. Ruqayya, his daughter, who was married at the time to Osman ibn Affan, the famous companion, died while her father was fighting the Battle of Badr and was victorious. And she didn't die from an accident, she died from an infection. Now, we find, by the way, in medieval times, so many people dying, young and inexplicably. And because of the circumstances of the age, plagues not were not just common, but plagues would were seasonal. A seasonal plague would come, hit a locality, go away, then come back and kill some more people. And yet the Prophet ﷺ, upon returning from the Battle of Badr finds Osman ibn Affan, his son-in-law, telling him that Ruqayya has passed away, obviously from some type of disease. And we have many portions of people in Medina dying suddenly, like Ruqayya the Prophet's daughter. And you can imagine that if it was one of us with our modern minds, we would immediately become convinced that Allah has forsaken us, that Allah has cursed us, that Allah doesn't love us, that why Allah has you taken my child? I just fought a battle for you and I just was victorious for your prayer and this is how you reward me, this is how you pay me back. I mean, you can completely imagine how a modern mind would work if you have just gone to war and become victorious and you are happy and you're saying I've you know I've defeated Allah's enemies and upon your return the news that awaits you is your daughter has died. And this is of course after the death, this was after the death of his two boys by years from Khadija after the death of his beloved wife Khadija and then Every, eventually, every child of the Prophet ﷺ will die except for Fatima, the only child who actually survives. Ruqayya was not a child, but I mean a daughter or a son. These hardships test our metal like every hardship when Allah tells us if Allah takes your your hearing or your sight who could have given to you who could maintain them except for Allah like every other challenge and every other loss it puts you at a critical point as to where you are going to turn from that point on. As Allah, as the Quran so eloquently put it, so that perhaps when confronted by this hardship, you will turn to God, recognizing your dependence on God and strengthening that relationship with God. So, one, under the circumstances where so many of us will confront challenges of all kinds, and plus the fear of infection from virus, etc., etc., what do you do? One, assume in fact, assume in fact that this affliction comes to talk to you directly. Don't use logic to marginalize the events 
and generalize the events and escape personal reflection and individual accountability. It's easy to say, well, you know, this is, afflicts everyone, this is all society. I, I'll, what I'll do is I'll follow the rules of science and I'll just go on with my life. It's nothing personal. No, personalize it. Because part of Allah's miracle is that events unfold at a universal level but for a believer, every event is highly personal regardless of how universal the event is. So if you find yourself in a war, yes, there are thousands of people in similar situations, but the part that concerns you is how this war speaks to you and your relationship to Allah. One, don't evade accountability and responsibility by generalizing and if and if if evading self-reflection. Remember that Allah knows us as a collectivity, as human beings, as nations and tribes, but also knows us as individuals. Second, assume in fact the worst, the worst. Of course, pray for the best, supplicate for the best, but assume the worst. Assume that whatever you fear will happen and commit yourself not to be a hypocrite. If you don't worship right now and you're waiting for the worst to happen, so you don't worship right now, but when you lose your job, you start worshiping, then you're a hypocrite. If you don't worship right now, but you wait till your child gets sick, sick to worship, you're a hypocrite. If you don't worship right now, but you wait till your parent gets sick, gets sick, as in the hospital, as in critical care, then you're a hypocrite. Assume the worst, but commit to not being a hypocrite. If you yourself you get sick and you are in a hospital and they're looking for a ventilator and you find yourself that it's, it hasn't worked and you're going to die and you still start begging Allah to forgive you, but at the time right now, you actually don't feel that strongly about your relationship with Allah, then you're a hypocrite. Assume the worst. Assume, in fact, you will get sick and that you will be in critical care and that you will die. And commit to not being a hypocrite. So what do we do? Remember that Allah speaks to all of us through universal events, but Allah individualizes these events. Two, Assume the worst and commit to not being a hypocrite. Three, of course, remember that Allah has put laws of causation and that part of being a good Muslim is to follow the laws of causation. You have not been privy to a covenant from Allah of safe conduct. You have not obligated by God by some type of promise where for you to assume that the laws of nature are going to be suspended in my case because somehow I'm special. The laws of causation are the laws of contagion and illness and medicine. Part of humility and part of taqwa is to say the laws that apply to everyone apply to me. If you lack 
humility and you take Allah for granted, you will say, well, it applies to everyone but not me. Did you somehow, were you somehow privy to a covenant with God so that you, are, you your, your majesty will be the exception to the laws of causation? A Muslim doesn't think that way. A Muslim is a rational being that follows the laws of causation and recognizes their mastery and does not assume that the laws of causation will somehow be suspended or put on hold for their own person. Of course, I'm not going to, you know, all, so all the rules of cleanliness and distancing and so on, follow them. It is part of your Islamic obligation to follow them. Last point I'll mention in today's khutbah about this. Do not tell yourself, well, I've lived a life where I've never turned to Allah and I have failed myself so many times. I've committed so many sins. I've been a hypocrite in the past with Allah so many times that now that there is this serious threat I am ashamed, I'm embarrassed to turn to Allah because I've been a jerk, I've been a loser, I've been whatever in the past. Remember that Allah says very clearly that only those who despair in Allah's mercy and forgiveness are the real hypocrites. This plague is an opportunity for you to come to Allah and you could, you could ask Allah to keep you safe or, or not, that's your business. What, what you ask Allah for is something between you and Allah. But definitely, Nothing is worse than sin. Nothing is worse than insisting on not going back and not retreating away from that sin. Nothing is worse than nothing is worse than insisting on distancing yourself from your maker because you've done so in the past. So whether this plague is a punishment for someone or not, it's very easy. If you are an unjust sinner, if you are an oppressor, a zalim, if you are a tyrant, if you are a person who have committed a lot, a lot of sins, it is a punishment for you and a warning. Perhaps you will get the point and return. If you have oppressed others, Allah is now oppressing you and warning you. If you, on the other hand, have lived a just life and have not oppressed others and been unfair and unjust to others, then it is not a punishment for you, but an opportunity to bring you even closer to Allah. And you welcome every such opportunity. Remember that Remember that the more you do tadarra, the more you supplicate, and the more you beg Allah for closeness, the more your heart will know tranquility and peace when Allah's name is mentioned. For so many people, when Allah's name is mentioned, 
we get uncomfortable, get nervous, sort of feel like, uh oh, things got serious. The reason is, it's because you have a lot of unresolved business with Allah. There is a lot of things that embarrass you and that make you uncomfortable, that you and Allah know about, and you haven't resolved them. And so you escape from Allah and you escape from yourself and ultimately it's silly because you are going to die and you're going to confront Allah and it's all escape efforts will be in vain. But that's the way we are. We're silly beings. Human beings are silly. This isn't the opportunity for the unjust to remember their injustice and to reform. And an opportunity for the sinner to come back. An opportunity for the most pious human being in the world to even draw closer to Allah. Think to yourself, what if my child, my loved one, me, myself, becomes ill how will my discourse with God be affected and commit to not becoming a hypocrite and not being a hypocrite? Start now. Start your process of being at peace and resolving the conflicts within with your Lord and Maker now. Don't wait till... You have to get the message in more severe and more drastic ways. Always remember that Allah is the most merciful, the most forgiving. There is nothing that Allah cannot forgive. And nothing that hides from Allah, if you think that you're hiding something that the entire world cannot see, Allah has already seen it, and Allah already knows about it. You're just not being honest and peaceful and, and true to yourself. وسبحان الله والله أكبر ونصلي ونسلم على النبي الأمين المرسل رحمة للعالمين محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وانتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين There are so many things that every week I want to talk about that have to do with our tradition. There are so many things within our majestic and wondrous intellectual and spiritual heritage that you want to share with people but circumstances arise and Jumu'ah must address circumstances that come up that are directly relevant to people. I want to underscore that for so many Muslims, They'll say, yes, you know, you're right. Jum'ah might be the only thread that still connects us collectively to a Muslim nation. But we go to so many mosques and the khutbahs are terrible. The khutbahs have nothing to do with anything. Khutbahs are basically people showing off their Arabic, uh, citing, quoting verses and hadiths often that with minimal effort to exert their intellect so to make them relevant 
in many Muslim countries, khutbahs are carefully monitored and controlled by governments. So you actually get nothing outside from the khutbahs that are presented by intention. Intentionally, the, the khutbahs are actually overseen by security forces, by Amni Dawla, by the who make sure that there is nothing in these khutbahs in Muslim countries that can actually make a Muslim feel that Islam is relevant to anything in existence. And of course, part of the irony is that we live in an age in which there is the blessing and the curse of social media because it is possible that through the medium of social media that the static and brain dead and completely anachronistic khutbahs, anachronistic meaning khutbahs that have no relevance to the day and age in which they live, but seem to have come from some medieval uh, platform that is transposed from the past and simply spewed out in the modern. It is. It might be an opportunity to challenge this dead discourse with some daring and honest speech where you actually demonstrate that colonialism failed in making Islam a dead religion. In another opportunity, because I don't have time today, one of the most remarkable things, and I know that people just, you know, often I meet people and they'll say, I'm reading about the Abbasi history. And I say, oh, what are you reading? I say, oh, well, we're just reading um, uh, Wikipedia. It, 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 it really upsets me. No, if you're reading things on the net, it doesn't mean you're reading. If you're reading things on the net, it doesn't mean you are, an, you are educated. Scholarship requires scholars not spewing off whatever people spew off on the net. A lot of the things that I read about Islamic history, especially in sources like Wikipedia, are so full of errors that they, and, and simply bizarre ignorance. Often it's intentional. Anyway, going back to, to this uh, issue of khutbah. For khutbahs, however, to become, to challenge the authoritarian mind, state of mind, the static, dead spirit and intellect of, of a person oppressed, when you oppress a person, they become dead intellectually and spiritually. They can no longer generate creativity because the first thing that dies through despotism is creativity. A person learns fear, and fear often kills and deadens creativity. In order to have that, first, you have to have khatibs that are committed to the principle of truth and that feel that and are convinced and are internally have a powerful conviction that unless they speak the truth, they will be punished rather than rewarded for their speech. In other words, that Allah will not accept a speech that is untruthful or that is hypocritical. Remember, and I say that to the Muslim Ummah, that perhaps you can have a cure for corona or any disease in the world. Unfortunately, there is no cure for stupidity. Unfortunately, there is nothing you can do to cure stupid people. Stupid people will read and will understand things stupidly. There, there, there is no way that you can elevate 
the IQ, except the best thing you can do is to get the, the person convinced that the realm of thought and reflection and intellect is not their true realm they're in, that they ought to go do something else. But how do you get people who are not stupid, people who are actually intelligent and educated to man the podiums of Jum'ah and I'm talking about non-Muslims because in the Muslim world it's another bombing. It is only you as the consumer that can decide that. If stupid people get on podiums, get on manabr, and they speak and they find Muslims come to them, listen to them, and do not rebel against the stupidity of their speech, then we will remain a colonized, dominated, oppressed people. Only if Muslims themselves say, instead of disappearing, I will rebel, because this space, I insist on the space in which Allah is represented, to be an, a speech that is respected and dignified, will you change the dynamics? Currently, intelligent people, educated people, accomplished people are not drawn to the podiums because no accomplished person is going to create their career as a khatib. Accomplished people go to universities, they go to centers, they earn whatever it is. But at least if they find that their community is honoring that space in which God is represented, perhaps you will attract intelligent people. And perhaps intelligent people will know that the Muslim community demands excellence and demands an elevation in speech. Let me just very quickly. We've reached a point where you have one of the largest institutions of fatwa in the Muslim world, Dar al Fatwa al Masriya. Issue a fatwa against a Turkish drama show. They issued a fatwa against a Turkish drama show called, I think, Ortugal or something like that. Saying that it is haram to watch the show. Why? Because the Egyptian government, of course, they say because it, it, it's, I, I, I mean, it's hard to find something intelligent in what they said. But the reason is that Turkish show got Arabs who watched it to admire the Ottoman history, the Ottoman heritage. And the Egyptian government hates the Turks and hates the Ottomans. And so Darin Fatwa al-Masriya, this is the official ifta of Egypt, takes an official position telling people it's haram to watch a Turkish show. When you have someone like Wazir al-Awqaf, the, the, the head of al-Qaf in Egypt, say that it is the Muslim Brotherhood who is spreading corona, and it is the Muslim Brotherhood behind the corona plague in order to spread the evil of the Muslim Brotherhood. When you have the religious establishment in countries like Egypt and Saudi and Emirat and even the religious establishment of Qatar and the religious establishment have reached points of absurdity 
and you look at this, these, the, the levels of absurdity reached, and you always find the same ugly, evil factor at play in all of them, despotism. For Muslims in the West, it is a powerful message that those among you who go travel to Saudi or travel to Egypt, to Azhar, or travel to Tunis, or travel to Mauritania, learn a little bit of, a little bit of Arabic and so on, and come back from there and spew off Arabic verses and Arabic terms and spew off hadith here and hadith there and the Quranic verse here and the Quranic verse here and use that as a position of authority and authoritativeness but ultimately do not elevate your intelligence in their discourse they are importing the ugly demonic stain of despotism from Muslim countries to Muslims in the West. And if you are a sincere Muslim, you would use that as a warning sign. They've gone to corrupt, infected places and imported the Islam that they have there, an Islam deeply infected with hypocrisy and despotism, importing it to us in the West, and in that, your intelligence is stunned. And the passion that animates your religion is stunned. It is time that we realize that these practices of Jum'ahs full of stereotypical statements full of buzzwords, full of concepts that defy reason and logic and beauty. It is time that we rebel against them so that we do our part to make our religion more meaningful in our lives and the lives of our children. For me, when corona, something like corona occurs, and I think, Allah, if I get sick and die tomorrow, have I done enough for my child to raise her head or his head as a Muslim? Have I explained enough? Have I done enough? Because the thing I care about the most on my deathbed well, of course, that first, that I don't end up in hell. But second, is that my child doesn't end up in hell. The thing I care about, and I've reflected upon this a lot, if it's the one thing, it's not the money, it's not the job, it's not the career, it's not the degrees, it's not, is that I want my child to grow up, not just a Muslim, but a proud Muslim, to die like I will die, a proud Muslim, and to ultimately to have to meet them in heaven. Ultimately, my dream is in the same way I pray all the time that my mother and my 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 parents will be in heaven and that I meet them in heaven. I want to meet my children in heaven. I don't want for me to make it and one of my children not to make it or my children not to make it. So I ask myself these ultimate questions and I try to make my peace with Allah while I am still standing, still coherent. And if Allah chooses, whatever Allah chooses, then I've already considered that, uh, that option and reconciled my peace, reconciled myself to it and achieve the level of peace. And I advise you to do the same. Ask yourself, 
if you die tomorrow, what will be the most important for you? If it is not that your child live and die as a Muslim and other than you, then something is wrong about your relationship with Islam. Allahumma afa'anna. Allahumma khfirlana. Allahumma arhamna ya Ali ya Azim. Allahumma qinna min kulli sharr. Allah forgive our sins, strengthen our faith, protect us from every evil, and protect us from illness and disease. Make us closer to you and go grow ever closer to you, Ya Allah. Allah ya'mur bil adli wal ihsani wa ita'i zil qurba wa na'al fahshai wal munkari wal baghi ya'ibukum la'allakum tadhkurun wa akum as-salam.